Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 14 of the podcast, the topic is post-pandemic tech. Our guest is David Bray, inaugural director at the new Global Geotech Center at the Atlantic Council, the storied Washington, D.C.-based think tank. David, it's great to be with you. How are you today? It's great to be with you, Tron. Thank you. Doing well. All right. So we have something exciting to talk about. I wanted to first just uh, list up some of the very exciting things you have in your background. You've done a a lot of things. Uh, I know you went to a lot of different schools, among them MIT. Um, You worked with a a bunch of different people uh, through your uh, Young Global Leader program at the World Economic Forum. You worked with Vint Cerf. Let's talk about that for a second. You've been a Marshall Memorial Fellow, uh, traveled to Europe, uh, and I believe you've also been uh, with uh, working with the U.S. Navy and the Marines, uh, working with a, a J-5 directorate as well, with a special command. Now, that's a, you're, you're young and promising, or I don't know if you... <laughs> That's taking care of itself on a daily basis too. Um, that's uh, a lot of pressure, David. Oh, well, no, I mean, I, I, I just say I fell on my head at an early age um, because actually, so I think my biggest fear was that the most exciting part of my life was going to be when I was a teenager. And what do I mean by that? Um, I, I, I did some science fair projects early on, and, and um, this was back in the early 90s. And it was middle school and high school. And uh, what was interesting is um, that was still when the government was sort of the biggest benefactor of scouting for talent in science and technology through science fairs around the country. And uh, so I got approached by the U.S. government when I was 15 to do a U.S. Navy project in the Sea of Cortez, working with Dr. Robert Ballard, who found the Titanic, uh, which was a lot of fun. It was actually televised through this magic of satellite television and cable TV and cable news uh, to to classrooms around the world. And then later, I got called down to the principal's office when I was 17 uh, and approached by four individuals, one of which was a Dr. William Jeffrey, who is now CEO of SRI, uh, who was offering through the Institute for Defense Analyses the opportunity to work with them and actually get security clearance. And essentially what I was doing was working with small satellites from the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization and trying to find civilian purposes for it. So one I, I was crop growth from space. So, so that was my biggest worry was that my most interesting years was going to be my teenager years. Um, and, and so then later when I was 20, um, did a computer model of the spread of HIV AIDS in South Africa, was in South Africa for a while trying to report on HIV AIDS. Uh, then in 2000, joined the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program at the Centers for Disease Control and was actually scheduled weeks in advance to give a briefing on September 11th, 2001, as to what we would do if a biotechnology event happened. Uh, the briefing was scheduled for 9 o'clock in the morning, and of course, 8.34, the world changed. And so we canceled that briefing, responded to the events of 9-11 for three weeks, and then at the end, October 1st, stood down from high alert, ended up briefing the CIA and the FBI on October 3rd, and the first case of anthrax showed up 24 hours later. So it was a very busy time. Uh, also, I mean, you, yeah, you yeah, had so, so many experiences <laughs> by the time you were 20. So this is, uh, I guess it shows you a little bit that, you know, um, it's important what you do early on, isn't it? I think it's that. Um, but I think I don't, I don't want to discourage anyone who has not had those experiences yet. I think it really is 
Uh, one, wherever possible, open the doors for others. And, and I think I was just really fortunate that early on I was, uh, through fate or whatever, or through, through the experiences I had with the science fairs, able to meet people who were willing to open the door for others. Uh, like I mentioned, Dr. William Jeffrey or Dr. Robert Ballard. Um, and so I think that means that we all have a responsibility to do that for anybody, ourselves, and that'll make the world a better place. And then two, it's not whether you do it when you're young or when you're older or anything like that. It really is about just seizing those moments um, and, and, and be kind to others. Well, we're going to get into our, our topic on, on pandemic and post-pandemic uh, developments and, and technologies. But I wanted to cover one more thing. I always ask my guests, you know, what, what's, what's something that you don't always share with everyone? Because you, you want to talk about something a little unique and bring out something in, 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 uh, in the people you interview. But you told me, which I also found really interesting, that you have a, a little bit of a background in jazz improvisation. Tell, yes. me, tell me about that and what that does for you now. Well, well, and first I want to also give a nod that I know you also, I've seen some of your videos where you also are performing online too. So you have a musical background too. Um, yeah, when I was young, um, my, my parents, you know, were, were encouraging if I did the piano for three years, they said, just do it for three years. And the three years, if you don't like it, you can stop for three years. Of course, it was hard. It was learning hand-eye coordination and everything like that. But in the three years I found I loved it. So I stuck with it. That led first to doing classical piano and then later jazz and jazz improv, uh, including some, uh, um, opportunities, uh, with New Orleans and some other, uh, groups in, in Virginia. And, um, just, I just find, I love it because it's a source of flow, a source of enjoyment. Uh, and I think what I do now is I try to recreate within the teams that I sort of build and, 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 encourage and cultivate uh, a similar sense of flow, a sense of that we can improv, we can have a plan, we can have initial theme, but we can also improvise along the way because the reality is in turbulent environments, uh, any plan lasts probably no more than five minutes. And so you need to be able to improvise. You know, I just uh, wanted to echo this, what you said, you know, when you start out, obviously music is a lot about technique. And I, I have this memory early on when I, I think I was forced in school to learn to play the guitar and I didn't like it at all. And my dad, who did not play the guitar at all, was sitting down with me as he, he would, you know, with everything. And he did not play the guitar at all, but he would just sit there patiently and say, you know, let's start from the beginning. Let's, let's do this and let's go back. And, you know, we've done three bars. Let's go back. And... Uh, somehow after some months, I miraculously started liking it. And mm -hmm. then after that, he didn't have to say a thing. And, you know, for years I, you know, got up at five 30 and, and played for an hour or, or even two, this stuff is really crazy. But, but the, my point though, is there's something that you need in order to do that kind of improvisation. And I think it might tie to some of the topics we're going to talk about because some of the technologies today, right, they are very complicated and you need a little bit of a repertoire in, in the techniques before you can feel comfortable. Uh, you know, improvise is maybe the wrong word, but to use them in the most appropriate way for society or for the thing that you're doing at, at work. Without further ado, let's let's move into geopolitics because that's really uh, and technology. That's really your that's your domain right now, right? It's my domain um, right now. It's my uh, my belief that if we don't get this right, uh, the future might be dark. So yes. So we'll we'll talk about wh where you work right now. Your main kind of employment, I'm I'm assuming right now, the Atlantic Council. But right before that, let's jump into this. How are new technologies and data changing geopolitics? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we, it's sort of interesting because we've been seeing this build for a while. And that's where I think, you know, sort of 
having my first exposure to the internet being in the mid nineties and, and, and even before the World Wide web came about, uh, and then sort of following this trajectory since then and sort of growing up with the technology at the same time, we're now in two years or less looking at at least conservatively about 80 billion network devices relative to 7.7 billion people on the planet in two years or less. Uh, the amount of data in two years or less, uh, some say it might be upwards of 120 zettabytes. That's 120 billion terabytes of data on the planet, which some say is is three times all the conversations we've ever had as a species. So if we're not drowning in data now, which I think we are, we're going to continue to drown in data and need to make sense of it. So, so this points to a world in which... Um, no longer are things data scarce. No longer are things uh, necessarily unobservable. In fact, we're probably going to be in a world in which so much is going to be observable, whether it's from commercial space satellites, uh, from people using their smartphones. I mean, we're already seeing that happening right now where people take video. But of course, with all these things come questions about how do you know that video hasn't been changed or altered? How do you know it's not a deep fake audio? Uh, and right. how does that impact geopolitics is, is the nature of, in some respects, this could be tremendously uplifting that we could have um, shared insight, shared awareness of what was going on. We could point out if there's atrocities or bad things happening or injustices happening. But we also need to have some way of determining what is real and what's not real uh, and making sense of it all. Uh, and that even if we have, even if we can trust the data, because I think the first pillar you have to get right is the data pillar, then you have to get tr another pillar necessary, which is a sense-making pillar, because the same data set presented to two different people, like if you present the same data to two different doctors, one of which trained to be, say, a, a, a neuroscientist, and the other one trained to be a, I don't know, endocrinologist, they will reach different conclusions based on their experiences. And so sometimes things that we, we claim are, are people either saying things that are not true or anything like that, I wonder, I mean, yes, there's, there's, there's some cases where there truly is disinformation, but I think there's other cases where it's just different sense-making models from different societies or different professions are talking past each other. And then finally, the last pillar we have to get right is the trust pillar. And trust, I define, is the willingness to be vulnerable to someone's actions you can't control. Um, and we're seeing more and more where this technology is so big, or the platforms are so big, or the companies are so big, or even the governments, that that's making people feel disenfranchised. They're feeling like they're losing control. And that's creating anxiety or creating frustration. And so what can we do to give some people some semblance of choice and agency in this world that's increasingly becoming interconnected and, and voluminous, both in terms of network devices, but also in terms of data? So fascinating. I, I wanted to ask you about one of the terms you, you were using. So sense-making, that's a, it's an interesting term and it's a little surprising to hear from, I guess, uh, someone who's a, also a technologist at heart. T tell me how you define sen sense-making because it, it has a tradition, right? Or there's oh, several traditions. Rich history, yes. So right. I define sense-making, uh, uh, I probably go back to Carl Weick because Carl Weick is sort of like the, the, one, of the, one of the foundational authors in this. And, and sense-making is how you, how you make sense of your present based on past experiences that you've had. So as you receive these signals, as you receive these inputs, what weight are you giving to what matters? What weight are you giving to what doesn't matter based on the experiences you've had in the past? And, and the reason why this is so important is, uh, I mean, Carl Weick was, 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 is and remains a, a very good sort of documentary uh, approach and an evidence-based approach that sense-making can make or break whether or not teams survive or not, whether or not organizations survive or not. Uh, there was the Man Gulch disaster, which unfortunately was a ra rather horrible fire where experience Experienced forest fire fighters were involved in responding to the fire, and unfortunately, they they 
they read the signs wrong and it resulted in all but one of them being killed in the forest fire, which is very tragic. Um, but I, I raise that because I think that's why I think we're in this era in which not only is it about making the data right, not only is it about making the trust right, we're getting so much data thrown our way. If we don't have the right sense-making lens, uh, that can lead to bad outcomes. Uh, I think that's great. Uh, and it also leads, I think, to something we'll talk about in, in a second, which is AI, right? Because so much of the discussion on AI is about, you know, you know when will the machines take over? But, but in fact, you know, at least for the next decade and, and, and beyond, right, it is a little bit about this sense-making that, you know, in, in the middle of all these machine algorithms, that it really just becomes important. Uh, both that the systems have some access to some of that sense making and that there's people making some sense of, uh, you know, how to deploy. Yes. Let's, let's just uh, talk a little bit about where you work. So the Atlantic Council is a, is a think tank and it was founded, I understand, back in, in the 60s and 61, uh, when I'm assuming the transatlantic dimension really just meant Europe and the U.S., and then yes, we are part of happened. NATO, exactly. Yes, but we're no longer right. there. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So it was connected to NATO, and and then it expanded fairly rapidly. I understand to uh, encouraging Japan to be more active on the global stage, and and then I understand also, uh, you know, Asia came in pretty early. You know, uh, in in the things that you started doing. Uh, do you have a sense of why the mandate expanded to a global mandate? Sure. So, so if you go back to our roots, like you said, 1960s, it was just reminding the United States that we can't go it alone, um, that we're stronger with allies. And, 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 and it can be allies with different nationalities, different backgrounds, but really it's recognizing that this, this is truly an interconnected world. Uh, and I think it was intended to remind the Democrats from the Truman administration and the uh, Republicans from the Eisenhower administration that, you know, you may have political battles and things like that. But if, if you don't agree that allies are important, that to that, if, if we forget that, bad things are slow to occur. And so that's exactly it. It's initially it was about the, the NATO uh, side and, and recognize we had to work together. But we have to work. Um, we have, we have uh, folks that focus on Africa, folks that focus on Latin America and South America, uh, Southeast Asia. Um, middle, uh, the Middle East, uh, and actually our geotech center, which is focusing on how data and technology changes geopolitics and vice versa. Uh, we are actually, one of our found funders are from UAE. It's actually the uh, Minister Omar, who, who at the time was in overseeing AI, and now he does AI and digital economy uh, for the UAE. Uh, but we're also in deep conversations with uh, folks in India, uh, folks in Vietnam, uh, in addition to uh, projects in Africa, including a possibility in Kenya that we might be announcing soon. Wow. David, have you ever played the tabletop game Axis and Allies? I have. That and Risk and all, all those fun ones, yes. <laughs> so, so, so here's my question. I mean, in that game, uh, it's not so clear who is your, who is your ally uh, at, at any given point. Right. That, that is a complexity in these international days uh, of the moment. How does oh, a think tank deal with that? <laughs> well, and I would say, you know, if we, we, maybe we should actually work together to update that game because it's no longer about trying to identify your ally on a national front. It's also identifying your ally on a um, uh, sector-based front. I mean, you think about it. Um, one of the things I say is, uh, you know, how many companies now identify themselves as being with one specific country? Uh, I think if you go to Silicon Valley right now, they'd say, and, and rightfully so in some respects, that they are international companies. They're not just U.S. companies. Um, and so that needs to be overlaid. But um, I'll give you a concrete example. So we are actually, the Rockefeller Foundation did approach us with the Geotech Center to have conversations with Chinese officials about what they're doing with data and AI. 
And the first meeting, um, I actually hadn't started yet, but I was being briefed and, 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 and caught up once I actually started. Uh, the representatives from the Atlantic Council said it almost, the first meeting never really, almost didn't take off because you had the U.S. claiming that China was all these things about AI. And of course, China was claiming all these things about the U.S. And they were talking past each other. And, and, and fortunately, we got past that. And, and then the conversations continued both in China, but then later in Europe, uh, also in India and Africa about what China is doing in each of those areas with data and AI. But that first meeting, um, it was almost seen as, yeah, we can't work together on this. And, and what we try to do is actually encourage we can. No, I think you're right. I mean, this is obviously a, a big issue, uh, but it's not clear that it's just about China, right? So China is obviously the, the, no. the biggest <laughs> elephant in the room. But even if you think a U.S. company like 3M, I mean, mm -hmm. with the, the pandemic, which we'll talk about, there was a little bit of a controversy there because 3M started saying to the U.S. government, wait a second, we are a global company. We, you know, right. we have factories in Europe and other places. We're going to, you know, we're going to produce our masks. And, and unfortunately, you know, we have clients and, and uh, allegiances beyond the United States. Uh, so these things are getting murkier, uh, murkier, but also, I guess, more transparent. These companies just don't have one singular national agenda. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the good news is there's, so actually it's interesting because when, when the 9-11 events happened after 9-11, occurred and we'd responded to it. Then later I got involved with response to severe acute respiratory syndrome and SARS. Uh, and after SARS was over, I was actually asked to brief the National Intelligence Council about what was my takeaways from having done those two events. And, and I came with two points, which this was 2003. I said, one, I'm not sure organizing as a nation state past 2030 makes sense. Uh, partly because where's a packet of information on the internet? Is it where it's sent from or received by? And we're seeing this with general data protection regulation, GDPR, uh, and then also just last week with some of the European rulings that, you know, that's an attempt to say anyone who is a member of the EU, regardless of wherever you travel, you treat them as if they're in the EU when it comes to their data, which really sort of comes head first with the Treaty of Westphalia, but it's a very interesting thing. But the other thing I said is, the second point I made was, uh, companies will increasingly be, be transnational in nature. And when that happens, how do you reconcile what they're doing as a, country, as a company with what a country is doing? And we know, for example, that there are increasing tensions between China and the United States, but that's just one example. I mean, there's also tensions with other countries. How do companies that want to do business transnationally not get pulled into that vortex if they can help it uh, of what's going on at the company uh, country level? And I think that's going to be really hard because, um, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, uh, it, it's really a question of who's setting the agenda, who's setting the norms. And and we've seen we've seen in the last five to six years, you know, if you'd gone back in 20, 2009, 2010, I think if you ask for people's perceptions of some of the big tech companies, it was much more positive than it is now. And I'm not saying it's right one way or the other, but there does seem to be a bit of a tech lash to some of the big tech companies. And so it seems to be that we, the public, don't trust either governments or large transnationals when it comes to our fate. Um, and so what's the third way that maybe involves the public, especially when it comes to data, but other activities as well, that involves the data, so the public, so the data is done with us as opposed to to us, either by a government or by a corporation. David, I'm so glad you used the term transnational. Uh, I'm guessing you did that very consciously. I've, you know, lately I'm writing on uh, kind of tra transdisciplinary, uh, uh, disciplinary. Ha! Huh, it's a hard word to say. Transdisciplinary activity. 
as a you know as a, a very different term than than multidisciplinary. And I think this you know you, you're making the point. These are not multinational companies anymore. Meaning, they operate just in multi in multiple jurisdictions. They are transnational. Yes. Can you? specify why you use that term? Because it's a very conscious use of a term. It is very intentional. And I think it's pointing to that they sort of supersede what we conceptualize as the rule of law and order defined by a nation. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, if you had been in the 90s, they would have probably been multinationals, that they were operating in different nations and they would comply with the laws of those different nations. But we're seeing increasingly um, transnationals in some respects um, negotiate, uh, I won't say extra, extra sovereignty or extra uh, territorial, but it's not too far from that. And in fact, uh, we know that China is doing this. In fact, uh, there is a small country in Eastern Europe. Uh, I won't say specifically which one, but um, we have we have heard that actually the Chinese government approached them and said, "Look, we'll set up a um, production facility in your country." But we want to provide our own police officers. They will enforce our own laws within this space. And essentially, our own, our own rules and our own police officers will operate with it. Basically, what you would give to a diplomat or an embassy, they're doing on that territory for a production facility, which I find fascinating because that really does call into question, which is, do we define nations as within these geographical borders, the rule of law applies, or is something different happening now? And what is that five or 10 years from now? So I think we could digress on any number of uh, way, ways from what you just said, because it's pretty explosive, right? You, you, you don't think that the nation state is a, the correct way to organize post 2030, which is less than a decade away. Yes. Yes. I think we either upgrade it or we find a different way. Um, and I'm not sure. Actually, what I would say, what I've been telling people is we need to think how we act more like networks and less like nations. And, and one example I would give to is how Estonia, uh, this, is, this is not, it was fairly recent, I mean, but it was in the last two or three years that they said you could become an e-resident of Estonia without having to reside in Estonia. Now, that's interesting because, of course, you might ask, why did Estonia do it? And one, it's because they're a small nation. I mean, they, they're about 1.1, 1.2 million, million people. Um, but I think it's also recognizing that if a large nation state next to Estonia decides to compromise their cyber-related infrastructure, if it causes destruction to their data, and it's only Estonian's data, then only Estonia really cares. But if they're actually involving people from around the world that are actually choosing to have an e-residency and have a proof of identity with Estonia, and it's people from around the world, and that large nation tries to do it, now you've got the entire world upset. Um, and so it's an effective form of diplomacy and deterrence by operating like a network versus just a nation state. That makes a lot of sense. I, I've actually worked with Estonia on e-government issues and they are extremely advanced and they were way, way ahead of, of, of anybody else. And they, they still are. Right. So, so yes. their, their notion of um, e-identity has been the most advanced in the world by, by any government for, for sure. So that's uh, and, and that's it's starting to matter. Right. I mean, e-government issues uh, were. A while back, we thought, you know, there were only about, you know, kind of small efficiencies and things like that. But they actually, now that it's all about identity, it starts to, to really matter. Yes. So, so tell me then, um, the, what are the methods that a think tank like an Atlantic Council uses? And we'll, we'll get to your center in a second, but give me a little overview because I don't think all of my listeners are 
very familiar with how a think tank operates. I mean, think <laughs> tank, it's a weird term in and of itself. I mean, right? Right. It is a weird yeah. term. And I would say they, they, they vary, but I would say that, that a, if, we were to, if we were to notionalize maybe an uh, idealized think tank uh, in general, is that it really should be a place where you're not caught up in the tyranny of the moment, um, uh, in the sense that, you know, when you're in government, um, oftentimes when things are, when a crisis happens or when some really high pressure issues are occurring, it, it, it's hard to find the time to pause and deliberately think as to what are the second, third and fourth order ramifications of this. In some respects, you're just dealing with the tyranny of the now. And so what a, an idealized think tank really should be is a place that says, let's actually both during crises and also when they're not crises, let's think beyond the horizon. What should we be focusing on that we're not talking about? In this crisis, we often, one, one time we had went with the CDC what we refer to as the B team. And the B team wasn't like the B players. The B team's role was you had your first responders that were the A team that were caught up in the immediate. The B team was saying, what are the first responders missing? What are first responders not thinking about that they should be thinking about? And they're sort of playing the devil's advocate saying, how do you know if this test result is right? How do you know if this data is right? How do you know if what you're doing is inclusive of all people or it's just a subset or it's, it's less than inclusive than it should be? And so that's what I think an idealized think tank should be doing is, is it, it's, it's providing leaders the ability for more deliberate and focused thoughts, both beyond the horizon when times are okay, but also beyond the horizon when things are turbulent in crisis. But it is quite complicated, isn't it, David? Because, I mean, you and I have both worked on, on all or on many sides of these, these fences. I mean, I, I've worked for think tanks. I've started think tanks. I have been part of corporations financing think tanks, uh, sometimes for not nefarious purposes, but obviously for ideological and political and uh, technological purposes. So, you know, you want to further certain interests. Right. Um, and then, but, but if you put that in the context of these transnational actors as well, I took a, lo a look at your honor roll of contributors and, and this is, you know, would happen to anybody who tries to get anything funded. You, you have to take money from someone and, and those people, obviously they have their own power allegiances, partly because money affords them that or, or the brands or the activities that have given them that power. How how do you think about those issues? So let's just say that, that your list of contributors, let's call it a hundred sponsors. I think it's a much more than that, but you know, let, let's call it four, four or five really big sponsors and then maybe up to 20 pretty significant sponsors. Mm -hmm. Is it the sheer number of sponsors that guarantees that you have a certain bit of independence or how do you think about those things? Because a think tank in and of itself is, is also a vehicle of those sponsors because otherwise they wouldn't be sponsoring it. And I say that as someone who has both sponsored right. this and, and afforded, you know, and, and gotten sponsorship. So I'm not against this. I'm just saying we're not in a world where, uh, you know, everything just happens because uh, we're all uh, good and, and pure. We all want certain things. Right. Right. So I think you hit the nail on the head and that's a good question to ask. So, so one thing that I respect about the Atlantic Council is that its roots were founded in being bipartisan. You're absolutely right. There are partisan think tanks, uh, whether it's from the left or the right. Um, and, and, and that's okay. They serve a purpose. But one of the things that the Atlantic Council strives to do is uh, we, 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 we actually do. We brief both sides of Congress and the United States, but it's not just U.S. Congress. We brief um, basically any government that approaches us, if they want to receive a briefing, we will brief them 
on what we think needs to be done. When we get money from sponsors, uh, the sponsors have to intentionally sign before we even start any project with them that the Atlantic Council reserves an intellectual independence policy, meaning that we're not asking them to, in fact, we don't. They will not review what we're going to do before we release it. Uh, we're not going to basically have them, you know, they don't get editorial rights or anything like that. We are going to publish what we think is the right thing to do. Now, you're absolutely right. Does that lead to them saying once we release something that they don't like, they're not going to fund us next year? Possibly. And we have to weigh that. Um, but I think we are very intentional, much like a university in some respects, that um, just like how professors, yes, you may receive funding from a government or you may receive funding from private sector, that the professors have the freedom to sort of say what they want to say. And they're not going to get fired if they say something that doesn't agree with the sponsor. No, that's fine. Uh, what, what is possible, though, is agenda setting, because a, sp a big sponsor can say, hey, I know you might want to do some stuff on this aspect of AI. Oh, yeah. We are prepared to do that this year. So, and, and that's why and the project is started. Even deeper than that, because um, right, right now, one of the things that I'm actually continuing to beat the drum on, I've been beating the drum on for the last three to four months, actually, ever since COVID-19 happened, is I really think we need to do data trust. And what do I mean by that? Um, data trust is this idea that you can involve citizen juries that could actually participate in the oversight of making sure any data that's brought to bear for a public purpose is only used for that purpose. Imagine for COVID-19. I mean, we talk about contact tracing, but also, let's say, monitoring wastewater. What if you said, you know, you, you actually got from each of the different U.S. states, you got from other countries as well, different local community representatives that said for the next six to nine months, you and 20 of your peers will make sure that the data being collected is only being used for this purpose, it's being forgotten after 30 days or being forgotten after 45 days. And on that, on top of that, we're going to involve a third party. Maybe it's EY or PwC or some other company to come in that can do a third party audit to make sure the data is truly forgotten and we're doing these practices. Why is that important? And I want to give you a quick why it's important. You think about, you know, there was Google and Apple with the contact tracing app and they baked in privacy protections and they were very well intended, but still three out of five Americans don't trust it. The reason why I'm saying that, though, is we've been doing events on this. We've been trying to raise awareness of that. And that's actually just out of my budget with nobody sponsoring us to do it. But we're trying to get someone that says, I now want to do that. So in some respects, we're pitching what we think is right. Uh, we'll see if anyone actually comes along to actually make it happen. Uh, but sometimes you're absolutely right. Sometimes it goes both ways. Sometimes agenda is setting done by someone that comes in with the funding. But other times you're actually saying, I think this is essential to getting right. And the question is whether or not anyone from industry actually is willing to actually invest in it. So let's talk about this idea of data for a second, because who who owns my data, right? Even if, <clears throat> let's just say that a, a blockchain protocol, and I know there are some some people working on this to, to make blockchain protocols actually act on all data on the internet so that in some ways you could attribute ownership to pretty much anything. Uh, and then the idea being uh, in some people's minds that you basically should own all your data. So if it's identity data about yourself, you can basically sell it or rent it to people who are using it. But basically, you 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 cannot take the ownership away from the original uh, owner, at least of some basic data. And then utterings and other things, you know, uh, also, uh, you know, there's copyright and other things protecting that. But but there's the sense of how you can now trace and track it, which is much more possible with digital means. But is it possible to have this very extreme notion that you own your own data. Isn't it also fair that if you collect data, you own it just because you collected it? I mean, there's a finder's fee to data too, right? Right. Um, I, I think the word own gets very murky in data. Uh, let's say someone takes a photo of you and three other people. Whose data is that? 
Is it a person that took the photo? Is it shared across the four other people that are in the photo? It, it just gets really hard. Um, now, what I, what I try to use instead is how do you make sure you have agency and choice about how the data is used? And I think that's the more important question. Because ownership, you know, the trouble with data is unlike a physical thing where there is one painting by Picasso of some nature, data you can make copies of and you really haven't necessarily lost value, um, but it, you can make copies of it and things like that. So that's where I think trying to apply the idea of ownership gets kind of murky. It's really about at what point do you need to have agency and choice and say, no, you cannot use my data for that purpose. Um, and at the same time, I do give my consent for this purpose, but only for the next 30 days or something like that. And that gets hard because it's one, very abstract. And two, as we already seen, I mean, most people, if you try to set your privacy settings, it's like you get a list of two or three pages or you get at worst a 40 page in user agreement that most people don't read. And it just sort of, they, we almost die by the legalese involved. And so what I really would like to see, and I've been pushing for this since about 2015 as well, it's another one of those, and, I, and, and we may be able to do it, is instead of using, I mean, blockchain, maybe, distribute ledger, maybe, what I really want to see is where you can have a natural language conversation with an open source agent that's acting on your behalf, that is your agent that actually goes out and negotiates with other intermediaries and says, David gives consent for his health data to be used in the event that he's unconscious or, or, or not, not revivable. Uh, he gives consent if he's in an accident. But otherwise, you cannot use his health data. Uh, and that other people will have other things. And, and that is a conversation with the agent because trying to click on all these different boxes, really hard. And it may be initially when you first get your agent, it really just get three choices. You can pick middle of the road. You can pick extreme on one side in terms of I want to be very privacy conscious and not share anything, or I'm willing to share a lot of things in return for getting things for free. And then over time, it becomes more refined. But we've got to figure out how to make this more of a conversation with people so that we can have individualization versus um, trying to click this and set this, whether it's on Facebook or Google. I mean, that's just too much for most people to do. So how exactly are you then advising the U.S. government or other governments? Because, you know, if you look at the European GDPR uh, regulation and, you know, I don't think we should make a massive <laughs> point of discussing that now because it could take us into uh, enormous. But but short, you know, just short, long story short, it's a data privacy regulation. The EU put it in place. Uh, big tech screamed, uh, you know, uh, for it over a while. Arguably, it has been a little difficult to implement and it hasn't really solved all the problems because you still get fairly complicated privacy policies and you have that, you know, you have to relate to them. And like you said, there's, there's nothing that really solves the problem, you know, in the first place, but it has created a discussion and it has definitely created new policies and attempts at transparency. But wh what would be the right way to approach this? If the EU were to revise their legislation and as they are updating their privacy and, and, and also in the U S where I think this has been left a little bit, um, you know, it's been pushed into no, the, the US future. Is not interested at all. No, you're right. No, <laughs> Except no. for maybe California. And even then that's, that's, that's being evolved. So, so yes, I would say, it, so what I have been advising is on the EU side, uh, as you know, there's been some fines that the EU has done, uh, to certain companies. Uh, and, and I think this, the statistic is, is there's a staggering number of, of what's perceived to be grievances and that, that occur on a daily basis still, and we're falling behind on those. My recommendation to them is uh, you can only use the fines for so long uh, before people ask, what are you doing with that money? And so actually what I would do is take a subset of those money from those fines and use them to fund startups 
that are showing a third way forward that involves data choice, data, data dignity is what I'm calling it. Uh, and I raise that and, and I have to give full disclosure that I actually, I, I, I have been advising for the last two and a half years, the first GDPR compliant social media company. It's, it's very small. It was called Hashtiv. It's now called Elevate You. But I raise that because um, you can imagine if you try to go to most investors and say, do you want to invest in the first GDPR compliant social media? Not too much excitement. But if Europe really wants to see GDPR followed, and it's not just that. I mean, there needs to be other investments that need to happen. Then you need to fund. You can't just say that's bad and, and not show the new way. You need to actually sort of show the new way by planting the seeds now. So that was how I would advise Europe. Uh, the United States, I need to recognize that the United States... The United States, I mean, we were born through a revolution. We, we fought a war against the king. And so we distrust any authority figure. Uh, you know? I mean, that's the difference between you look at Canada versus the United States. Canada had a peaceful separation from the crown. Europe did not. Uh, I mean, the United States did not. And so that, that, is, that is sort of quintessential to U.S. culture. But what the U.S. does have a lot of um, is we do have a lot of litigious we have a lot of lawyers, and we do have a practice of having boards to oversee financial flows. And so I think the same practices we do where we require public companies to disclose their, their financial expenditures, and then we have audits to make sure you're truly using the money for that purpose. Imagine if we held data companies that you have to be responsible for disclosing publicly how you're using the data, what data you're collection, what you're doing with it. And you have to make that public. So now journalists can take a look at it. Public interest groups can take a look at it. And then you have data audits that actually say, okay, so they're claiming that they delete your data if you ask for it after 30 days. Are they really doing it or, or are they just claiming they're doing it? They're claiming they don't use it for this purposes. Are you really doing it? I think that would fit the U.S. culture much more is the same sort of regime we do for financial uh, information. Do the same thing for data as well. Let's move it into what you actually do with the Atlantic Council's <laughs> Geotech Center, because you launched on the 11th uh, of March of this year. First of all, geotech. Give me a succinct definition of geotech. Yep. How do data and technologies change geopolitics and how do geopolitics change data and technologies? So what does that mean? What technologies are in scope? Any technologies? Uh, yeah. In fact, the reason why we were created, and, and, and it was sort of, for me, I mean, I was already having fun with Vint Cerf with the People Center and Internet, as you mentioned, for the last few years. Uh, publicly with Vint was working on trying to make sure the Internet was more inclusive, involved people uh, from around the world. I mean, we hit the, we hit the tipping point around uh, late 2018, where at least half the planet now had the Internet. It took about 35 years, but we had gotten there. But uh, what can we do to make sure the other have at least had a choice of being uh, having the Internet be accessible? And what could we learn from the last 35 years that could make sure it's more inclusive, diverse and participatory? Um, but also privately was working with Special Operations Command to tackle misinformation, disinformation, which seems to be a growing challenge, um, not just for the United States, but for any open society around the world. And now so just for people who are confused, it's yeah. way, way beyond geospatial technology. That was kind of my initial oh, yes. thought. You're no, right. you're absolutely right. Uh, that's the other thing I usually give people um, is I, I say, no, we're not doing geospatial technologies. And in fact, we had gotten a call from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency saying, oh, you're doing mapping. And I'm like, no, 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 this is not mapping. Um, this is... Um, congratulations, there's personalized medicine. We can tailor therapies to your body. Oh, wait, that can also be used for personalized poison. This is, congrats, we can use 3D manufacturing and additive manufacturing to produce things anywhere. Oh, wait, 
we can produce things anywhere. This is recognizing that with quantum computing, we'll be able to do very impressive gains in quantum in actual computational cycles once that occurs. Oh, wait, we can start to break encryption. What does that mean? And so it, it's recognizing that there's, there's a series of technologies on the horizon in the biospace in the manufacturing space, in, in the computational space that are all going to be coming out at about the same time. And usually it takes about, it's been shown, it takes about 15 to 25 years for societies to figure out the good, the bad, and, and, and what they consider to be ethical and unethical with any new technology. And if you've got these waves coming out all at once, I don't think we've got 15 or 25 years to figure out what's ethical or not ethical. We've got to actually sort it out fairly soon. So we got to get ahead of it. And then two, usually whenever new technologies come out, initially there's actually widespread inequities. Um, you think about the railroads in the United States, but also in, in England and Europe. When railroad technology first came out, there were some really extremely rich people and a lot of people that were not. And that's generally what technology does. It's initially, it's not democratized. And so it's not accessible to everybody. And there's those that know how to use it or know how to make the capitalization of it. Uh, and, and, and so here we are already in a period in which people feel like there may be some injustices and in, in that need to be addressed and everything like that. And we're getting ready to have another wave of technologies come out that may even just exacerbate the, the, the haves and have nots. Um, that might not be a good recipe for the world sticking together and holding together. David, that's fascinating. I think, you know, you're obviously going to have to come back because there, there are so many technologies to talk about, but you, you just said something interesting. You said there are a lot of technologies that are in that phase that we're just about to discover what, what they're, they're, they're going to do. But then there's a cluster of new technologies coming out. What, what kind of distinction are you making there? Which, which technologies belong in the category that they are already maturing right now? And some of us have already started figuring out, you know, how we can correct for them. But then there's a whole other set of technologies in the garage that are about to get to the main stage. Well, just very briefly, which, which technologies are we talking about? Sure. Um, examples I would give of those that are here that people are beginning to figure out. So they're, they're past the proof point. They're now here. Uh, commercial satellites, um, which of course then leads to location information, leads to photographs from space. The fact that you can ask on demand in 24 hours or less and get a commercial resolution satellite as good, if not better than what you can get through government. Um, and also um, the fact that people, there, there are cameras everywhere now. I mean, that's, that, that's something we, we, we have created a panopticon. The question is, what are we going to do with it? And, and how do we make sure we still respect human rights and dignity? Um, other examples, um, you know, I think in, in some respects, AI is on its third wave. I mean, AI has been around since the 1950s. This is the third wave, machine learning, and even more deeply beyond that nested to it, neural networks. But the question is, when something can make sense of data much faster than humans, but we can't necessarily explain it. I know there's efforts on explainability, but that I would say is not here yet. Um, that's why sense making becomes so important because now you're going to actually be interacting with a machine and you may not know why it's reading, reaching the conclusion that it is and whether or not it's reaching through the same sense making model you are applying to the data. But those are things that are all here now. Things that are sort of getting to the proof point stage that are not here yet. Um, yes, we've got CRISPR technologies. There's rumors that there that may have been used more in humans than, than, than has been publicly revealed. But I think personalized medicine, watch that space over the next five years to see what happens. Um, the, the, the other thing I'd be watching is quantum. Although I would say probably if, if a government comes through, if a quantum breakthrough first, we probably won't know about it initially, um, just for various reasons. Um, for but, the reason that they want to delay it. 
Yeah. Right. But here's the other thing. What happens if a company comes up with it first, you know, and and I often say in some respects, a lot of Canadian, uh, so Canada, I think leads away in a lot of quantum research. So what if a Canadian company figures out how to do quantum computing first? Uh, (laughs) What does that mean for geopolitics? (laughs) So do you really think it's that important of a technology? You think that quantum, uh, could change the world in, you know, in more ways than, than AI and even a, than personalized medicine. I mean, is it that kind of a technology that really is going to change everything? Well, so I think here's the thing is, is that you see already multiple companies, sorry, multiple countries building large data reserves where they're storing data that they've collected now already that's encrypted with the idea that eventually they'll be able to decrypt it. So the question is, what happens when things that we didn't know that were happening now are later known five or 10 years from now? That'll be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think uh, quantum, we'll, we'll say for a whole separate, I, I, I have a bunch of different people I'm going to start uh, interviewing on, on quantum. I, I sort of consider it though, and maybe this is me being a little conservative uh, on, in terms of what's going to happen in the next decade. I, I think of it more as next decade's technology, but but I do recognize that there are uh, there are breakthroughs happening and there are startups starting to do interesting things. And, and the cybersecurity space is moving Really fast. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you haven't but, thought about implementing quantum-resistant algorithms, you might want to start doing it now. Um, I think that's absolutely right. And the other thing that I also think is it's not just about the, 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 the decryption part. I mean, that's interesting. But already we have quantum entanglement. And, and what is quantum entanglement is briefly the idea that you could actually know if somebody else has tapped in or observed the communication that you're having. Uh, because it basically would flip the qubit because someone else observed it. And so I think it's just really the fact that there are a lot of interesting phenomenon that are not feasible at the macro level, a macro world that can actually be, we can use these quantum phenomenon to do very interesting things um, that in some respects, what, what quantum decryption possibly takes away could actually be restored with quantum entanglement or things like that. So I think quantum entanglement is a, is a whole other podcast, but is there a possibility that you can uh, layer blockchain on top of quantum and still get some sort of transparency uh, about what happens? So, 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 so yeah, so quantum entanglement is just letting you know if somebody else listened to your line. Uh, quantum right. decryption, if you used, that's an interesting question, if you used some sort of distributed ledger technology, I think the, the question is, is that, yeah, you have traceability, but in some respects, you have traceability. So, so, so what I would say with blockchain technology and what I'd say with any time of auditing technology, because really I think the thing that makes blockchain the most interesting is, is actually the immutable audit ledger. And you can have a- Oh, I agree with you. Yeah, no, um, it's the auditing and transparency aspect that's yep. gonna, I, and governments I think are slowly waking up to this. I, I don't understand why they didn't do that earlier, but this is a, it's a transparency technology for, for audits and uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, exactly. I think people are quickly discovering that what they thought with Bitcoin could not be tracked by the IRS, in fact, can be precisely tracked by the IRS because there is- Because it is a ledger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so I guess the question I would say is, do we want everything we do to have an immutable audit log? Or are there things that we want to be forgotten? And I think Europe at least has an answer that there may be some things that we want to be forgotten over time. So yeah, this is an interesting question. Uh, because the other thing I would say is even the, even the most virtuous person, and this was actually something that I did, uh, this was something I did back in 2010, 2011 when I was doing counterterrorism information uh, sharing. And so we were trying to deal with what information needed to be shared for counterterrorism purposes and what didn't. Even the most virtuous person in the last six months, there can be something that if you only take a certain time slice of it, 
will look like they did something bad. Um, and, and, and I actually, I knew during the U S I mean, this is, this is not a candidate that's currently running, but when there were multiple candidates running for the U S election this year, I knew one of the candidates parties was actually, uh, having their candidate as soon as they woke up to when they went to sleep, wear a camera, a web camera that was going all the time. So that if later someone tried to attack them as saying they did the following thing, or they claimed the following thing or something like that, that was misinformation, they could go back and replay the video. That's a solution. But I think that doesn't respect human dignity. And maybe that is what we need to do for our political candidates. In fact, Socrates and Plato argued in the Republic that that's what you hold people to, assume that you're always being watched. But we could have a deeper conversation that in some respects, when we transition from the medieval ages to the guilds uh, and the guilds and then to the professions, the whole point of the professions was to have a self-policing body of experts, whether they were doctors, whether they were lawyers, that would set the criteria for ethical behavior. And if you did not behave with those ethics, then your own body of other experts that were in your field themselves would actually say, well, did you do the right thing or not? Did you make the right decision about saving that patient's life or not? Um, and, and I think what I really would like is our incentive, uh, systems that incentivize humans to do the right thing, even if nobody's watching, versus systems that say, assume everybody's watching you. Yeah, I mean, that's it's interesting. It's uh, sort of like the difference uh, that now is becoming pretty apparent with uh, cybersecurity because, you know, they used to do a lot of just end endpoint encryption or, or basically just encrypting from, from bad guys. But they realized that the bad guys are already in the corporation. It's us, <laughs> you, yeah. you know, so that's the challenge. The bad guy is, is everybody. Oh, or another because example you, is yeah, the bad guy is everybody. And on top of it, so, you know, there was a big push to use uh, SSL encryption uh, because they wanted to make sure there was SSL encryption. And, and I was one of those people that in 2017 said, I get it. I understand why you want to use SSL encryption. But what happens when people are using encryption to deliver payloads and we can't detect it? And so now that we've rolled out SSL encryption on a lot of websites and things like that, now actually uh, those that are trying to prevent cyber intrusions have the problem of they can't do signature detection of malware because it's encrypted until it's actually delivered to the individual. David, there's one thing we have to talk about. Uh, I have advised parliamentarians on technology, so I know <laughs> what that's all about. Funding, yes. <laughs> the, the conversation you and I were just having, and this is not to say that you are smart and I'm a good listener or anything like that, but the level of precision that you have to have when you talk about these things in an ideal world is, is very high. And, and, and th there are some things that relates to our earlier conversation about me playing classical guitar in the morning and you sitting on the piano, uh, you know, practicing because your parents taught you. Right. For those people in power, and I'm not, not at all saying that everybody in power, you know, hasn't done those uh, practices, but they are many from a different generation and they certainly haven't, they, they, they haven't sat down with, uh, with uh, technologies the, the way that you and, uh, you know, and I have. How do you even begin? When you go into one of those chambers and you know you're going to have a discussion and then, I mean, even just the kind of conversation you and I had now, I mean, you, you take a question uh, and then, you know, at one point uh, we bring in quantum entanglement and then, you know, blockchain. If you don't really understand what these things are doing, how are you going to create policies around these issues? Because it's not just about, oh, you know, we'll know it when it breaks. But, you know, some of these things, you won't know it for years. Right. Yeah. So that's a really good question. Uh, so... 
So here's where I've gotten, and I'll tell, talk a little bit about the journey that got me there. That when you engage, whether they're from Parliament, um, U.S. Congress, um, others, you need to recognize that they are, in some respects, focusing on outcomes. Um, you know, the outcomes that will help get them reelected or whatever it is. In some respects, that's, that's not the fault. I mean, that's what the system is designed to do. Uh, our own Federalist Papers in the United States said they wanted ambition to counter ambition. So don't expect, don't be surprised if politicians are ambitious. But right. When I brief them, I sort of want to talk about what what are the outcomes they can get if they do something? What are the outcomes they can get if they don't do something? So I'm not really talking about the mechanisms. I'm more just talking about the outcomes. Now, there's sometimes when you need to go against uh, go deeper in the hood because what I've seen lately, and I hate to say this, it was around 2015, at least in the United States, where, I mean, I've always been a nonpartisan. Um, I, I mean, I, I work for, you know, I, I will work for, I, I, and nonpartisan does not mean I'm neutral. I have values. The values I have are for openness, for open societies, for choice. I think that's come through in what I've talked about here, um, that people should have dignity uh, and that we should work together as communities um, to try and remain open as societies. But as long as you share those values, I'll work with either side of the aisle to make that happen. Um, and what I have started to see in 2015, and this was around when 24-7 News was really taking off, uh, social media was reaching sort of a, a tipping point. And I would also say it was actually, I, I saw certain companies decided that's when they were going to allow more ads to autoplay. And certain companies that were not making money in the space all of a sudden started making a lot of money. And that was probably not because more people were watching the ads, but because the yeah. bots were watching the ads. 2015, I thought it began to get really difficult to remain a nonpartisan, uh, not just in the United States, but also overseas when I was a Marshall Memorial Fellow and things like that, that, that both parties sort of had this winner-take-all approach, that if you don't fly our flag, you must be against us. And I'm like, no, I'm not against you. Here's my values. I may just not be flying. In some respects, actually, in the United States, when you're in government as a senior executive that's nonpartisan, it's actually a felony if you do any overt political activity. So it's like, actually, I can't even fly the flag even if I do side with you. But I raise that because now we're in an era that, in some respects, as a result of transparency through, and I'm not saying social media is perfect transparency by any imagination. In fact, a lot of it is distorted and, 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 and not real. But in some respects, this, this overflow of information has created a, a, a reality where politicians used to have 80, 85% rhetoric, 15% compromise. I now think we're in this era in which, at least for open societies, we're at 99.9% .9 rhetoric, maybe 0.1% compromise. Um, partly because if they look like they're compromising anything that goes across their party, uh, they're somehow a traitor or they're branded as you've gone against us. And, and so, it, so that's why I have to be very cautious when I brief parliamentarians, not just talking about outcomes, but also being aware how they might weaponize what we just talked about here to sort their suit their political agenda, but lose the technology meaning behind it. And that's where I have to be very intentional about some of the things that I say. But David, if you think about what you just said, and then you related to earlier your, your comment about nation states. Yes. I mean, the, the politics within some of these nation states, and particularly in the US when it's still polarized into an artificial distinction between two very historical anachronisms yes you know uh, yes. <laughs> how how do you even conceive of those two anachronistic structures you, you know they are uh, and they are then acting on on the national stage but it's it's really difficult i think for them frankly yes to see how 
they could also do otherwise, right? So yeah, these they, technologies can go in either direction and, and it's just not two. No, agreed. And, 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 <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, and you're also hitting, I mean, I'm reminded of the song, something's got to give, something's got to give, something's got to give. Um, yeah, something's going to give eventually. The question is where it's going to go. So, yeah. Yeah. so, so here's the, here's what we're trying to do is cause I agree. These are really hard challenges. Um, we will be coming out in, in mid October, um, with a set of pragmatic, actionable recommendations. It's going to be our initial one. Our, our final draft will be in January of next year, but initially in October. And in fact, I'd welcome you and all your listeners to comment when we do on what can open societies do to demonstrate data and technology efforts that, that sort of celebrate the values of openness, choice, human agency, human dignity. And also added to that, overlay how these data and technologies can lead towards more just societies. Because you know and I know, and I think you know, most people know, that in the, the past has been less than perfect. In fact, if anything, there are no perfect human societies, no perfect organizations. But we have injustices both past and present that need to be addressed. And to me, that's a very compelling agenda for data and technology that can still respect privacy, still respect intellectual property, still respect commerce, still res- respect inventors of ideas. Um, but also address some of the past injustices. And then at the end of the day, I hope that cuts across countries. I hope that cuts across sectors. It's not identified as being an agenda of any one party. Uh, and so in some respects, I just refuse to play the hymn sheet of what those two, anast- you know, those two parties you mentioned are playing and actually just put forward my own theme, my own music. And I want to see if anyone else joins me in the jazz quartet to do that. So it's your own music, but let's think about another issue that I we were supposed to talk more about, but post-pandemic tech yes. or the post-pandemic situation. And I don't even know that we can talk about post-anything pandemic it's at the moment. But, it's still in the midst of it, yes. <laughs> uh, exactly. But what is this pandemic doing to the needs for tech? And initially, I would say, I actually want to share that I was a little bit disappointed with our tech. Yes. Not just with our tech, but with a lot of things. But But basically, some of the tech that we thought was very advanced, wasn't super advanced. There's a, there's a lot of, a lack of tech, I guess, actually in, in public health generally, but, but also the AI platforms that we thought were going to track all this, right. They're, they're not really coming out, at least their version one, their prototypes, uh, you know, the beta, it was very much a beta, wasn't it? Well, here's what I would say. Um, so when I, so literally you know, I mentioned how in the past, in 2001, I was involved with the response to anthrax. So, so there was the, there was events of anthrax in October, and November of 2001, um, and I had been pushing prior to October, like this was back in January and February of 2001, for an electronic means to actually allow people to report test results uh, in case there was a biotechnology event, because we had labs all throughout the United States, um, and and what you discovered in 2000 was state of the art for public health facilities was faxes. Uh, and, and if they wanted to get access to the internet, they actually had to go oftentimes to a library across the street, uh, to upload anything. Um, but we did, we put in place a mechanism, although I was being called a heretic, I was being said, you know, why are you trying to change things? Faxes are good enough. And so when Axtrax finally happened, the good news is we could actually do web-based reporting of results. It's fascinating now because here we are in 2020 and I'm seeing for COVID-19, they're back to using faxes. And you might not say, well, what Incredible. happened? And, and what yeah. happened was the money dried up. Um, so when, you know, after the events of anthrax, after the events of SARS for about 10 years, the United States was very focused on funding, um, anthrax and other emergency response technologies that could have been used for COVID-19. 
But then after 2012, 2013, the funding got cut. It was do more with less, sequestration. And so we lost not only those technologies, we not only lost that IT, we lost those experts. They went someplace else. Uh, and, and we lost those experiences. And so we've regressed in some respects. Had COVID-19 happened in 2009, 2008, we would have had a much better response than we're having now in 2020. Uh, and it's not just the United States. France actually had massive stockpiles of personal protective equipment that they ended up actually destroying in 2013 because they didn't think they need them anymore. Um, so, so yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here, but, but do you think post pandemic tech will be different? Do you think that technology is going to rise to this challenge and is going to one, I guess, bring us out of this mess eventually. And, and two, will the context be different for what tech is? Because the reason I'm asking the question is we were in an era or, uh, that we talked about earlier, you know, and we are perhaps still in an era of technology optimism. Everyone thinks that this is the decade where everything is changing or the past decade has been so transformative. And, and then even if you think about the internet in the last three decades uh, leading up to it, you know, everything has changed, right? So there's a little bit of this sense that I believe they had at the end of the 18th uh, century, like pretty much at the end of every century when, when there's right. this sense that there's a new beginning and there's a lot happening. And some of that imploded. Oh, a lot of it imploded. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right? World War One. it was a case of, there was a lot of great technology. Oh, wait. Oh, no. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, same thing with well, war. The technology wasn't really designed to solve the problems we now have. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Well, I would say here's the other thing is technology by itself doesn't solve any problem. It's the choices we humans make that determines whether it solves a problem or it makes more problems. And there will always be more problems. I mean, the example of, congratulations, we're rolling the internet to the world. Oh, wait, now we've rolled out the internet to the world. We've got cyber crime. We've got cyber threat. We've got identity. We've got misinformation. So now we have new things to address. Should we have not rolled out the internet to the world? No, we, we did. It's a good thing. But now we got to figure out the next round. And so there's, I, I think it's almost like how Charles Dickens said, you know, it's the best of times. It was the worst of times. We will always be in that cusp of really great things and really bad things sort of being there. And, and what I would hope from this pandemic, and I'm not seeing it at least from the United States right now, which is very disappointing, is what can we do to put aside, put aside what I would call squabbles on the sidelines and say, we are truly connected. We are, are we all relate, you know, by virtue of how we're born, we could either be very privileged or not. We could be in a great place or not great place. And that we owe a responsibility to everyone and all of us to make sure that we uplift not just the United States, but the planet. And that actually is something we should lead to, that if we really embody we the people, then let's be we the people. And yes, our history was flawed and there are things that are injustice and we need to address that. But we can lead that way. But that's not a tech thing. Tech can help and support that. But it's really, it's really at first a conscious choice of where do we want to go. The tech side, what I worry about is, I mean, you look at it, it's like the NASDAQ is up more than 28% than the year prior. So whereas, you know, COVID-19 in some respects has been great for technology. Um, question is, where, where is that money going to go? Yes, I get. Business needs to be business. It's not wrong to try and seek a profit. That's how you get fuel to do things. But where is that money going to go? And is it going to exacerbate tensions? Is it going to exacerbate polarization? Or can we find ways that, that create a world in which business, yes, you're focused on commerce, but you're also focused on stewardship for the planet as a whole 
not just for humans, but for the planet as a whole. And, and, and am I asking too much? I don't know. But maybe if we just get 20% of industry to care about that, uh, I think that, that could be a very, this might be the year and the decade in which instead of relying on just governments to sell, help us, uh, industry could step up and show a different way forward that that is industry, but industry with some values that actually are truly transnational in nature. Wow, that, that would be great. I only have one more question because I think we should con uh, continue this at a different time, but we've talked about a lot of advanced things. Staying up to date on this array of this avalanche of new things, whether it's technologies or it's events that happen like the COVID situation, just figuring out the use cases that make most sense. How do you stay up to date? Who do you follow? What do you read? How do you stay <laughs> Yeah. David Gray, the smart person, because it's not evident that, you know, what, what you were taught 30 years ago, it is marginally useful, but you, you surely you have to fill it up with new things. Where, where do you go? Right. Exactly. I mean, um, I mean, so where do I go? Uh, try is actually, it's interesting. So I, I, I've lost, I mean, I've lost interest in following. I think social media is too immediate, too visceral, too emotional. And so I don't necessarily follow that. And even news, I mean, I don't fault for-profit news for having a slant and having a bias, but I recognize they have a slant and a bias. And so my solution has been try to connect with as many peers and people as possible from different backgrounds and even people that you disagree with and just learn from them. Uh, and, and that can be, believe it or not, can be decidedly old school technology called listservs. You know, uh, they are actually good discussion points if you if you cultivate them right in their civility. Um, another way, um, just just try. I mean, even though COVID nineteen has made it hard, you can have a virtual happy hour where you invite five or six people just to have a roundtable uh, and just talk about you know what do we think is happening in the quantum space or what do we think is happening in the algorithm space. But I find, and you have to be intentional because human nature is going to try to surround like with like, and if you do that, then you fail. I mean, monocultures lead to monocultures of thought, and that's a bad thing. Find people you disagree with and listen to them and learn from them, and you'll actually get a lot of value from that. If your listeners really want a, a sort of source of if they could go online beyond their peers and beyond diversity of thought and everything like that, uh, I find France 24 is actually fairly objective in their international reporting, uh, as is um, BBC News. Uh, and I also would say, actually, the English version of Al Jazeera, and I recognize the English version of Al Jazeera, if you translate the Arabic version, they're saying different things, but there's still value in that. Those would be the three sources that I tend to go to if I'm looking for uh, truly what we would have called 20 or 25 years ago, um, attempts at independent objective reporting. What about on the technology side to uh, track tech trends? Yeah, that I find it's just evolving so fast that by the time it gets reported online, it's usually out of date. Uh, and so you really just have to have colleagues in Singapore, Silicon Valley, um, Hong Kong, and just be listening and learning from them. And by colleagues, you mean uh, professional technologists or people kind of in your field like... Uh, whatever your field is. Yeah. I don't know if I, I, I keep on looking and I find some people, it really is professional technologists, but it's also, it's actually trying to intentionally have a conversation with a professional technologist right next to someone who's a policymaker and, and listen to them, talk to each other and see where they're connecting, where they're not connecting and then serve the bridge between that. David, this has been fascinating. Thanks Thank so you, much for it. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to even more conversations because I think we've got about 
I hope I'm I hope I'm wrong, but I think we've got four or five years to get this right, and it needs to be larger than than us. So anything I can do, Tron, to help with your efforts to build a network uh, that spans the world, we can actually make a positive difference together. Thanks. We'll we'll definitely talk more. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Great. You have just listened to episode 14 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Inheim, futurist and author. The topic was post-pandemic tech. Our guest was David Bray, inaugural director at the new Global Geotech Center at the Atlantic Council, the storied Washington DC-based think tank. My takeaway is that the world now needs to ensure that new technologies not only contribute to innovation, but also simultaneously empower people, increase prosperity and secure peace. One way we talked about is to develop data trusts to secure that exchanges of data are mutually beneficial and provide ethical and governance support. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.